Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The countries involved in the African slave trade continue to come to terms with its legacy. Following America's lead, academics in Britain are now reckoning with how much the slave economy built the country's universities and how to make amends. And you know those flashing advertising hoardings that surround the field in televised sports? The ads you see might already be different from those in different countries. Soon, the person right next to you might get a different set too. But first... During the Gulf War of 1991, tens of thousands of anti-personnel landmines were showered over Kuwait and Iraq by American planes. That was the last time America made significant use of the devices, designed to kill or injure soldiers on foot. But nearly three decades on, a ruling by the Trump administration suggests that the weapons could make something of a comeback. Anti-personnel landmines were banned 23 years ago under the Ottawa Mine Ban Treaty of 1997. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. It was a, a cause that was famously championed by Princess Diana. The world is too little aware of the waste of life, limb and land which anti-personal landmines are causing. It was a cause that was signed by dozens of countries. It now has 164 parties. And since then, deaths from landmines, the use of landmines has plummeted. But not everyone everywhere signed up to that, that Ottawa Treaty. No, there were lots of holdouts. They included lots of dictatorships like China, Cuba, Iran, Russia and Syria. And of course, America, which decided it wasn't ready to sign. It thought landmines could still be useful And although President Bill Clinton said he hoped America would sign up by 2006, his successor, George W. Bush, completely rejected the idea. So America has been has been using them since? No, it hasn't used them on any meaningful scale since 1991. And in 2014, Barack Obama said outside of the unique circumstances of the Korean Peninsula, where we have a longstanding commitment to the defense of our ally, South Korea, the United States will not use anti-personnel landmines. So the existing stockpile will expire in the 2030s or so, and you're going to have to come up with new ones that are legally compliant with the Ottawa Treaty. And, and so it's, it was kind of like becoming a signatory to the treaty by the, by the back door. But that now seems like it's in the past. Why, why is that? So Donald Trump has rescinded the Obama-era policy. Like so many other of Barack Obama's diplomatic agreements, he's decided this is not a good idea. He's ripped it up. The Pentagon said it has conducted studies that demonstrate a critical capability gap 
It says they need landmines as a vital tool of conventional warfare. I think uh, landmines uh, uh, are an important tool that our forces need to have available to them in, in order to ensure mission success. And they will not only allow anti-personnel landmines to be used outside of the Korean peninsula yet again, but the US military can also start building new ones for the first time since 1997, well, what do you make of the assertion that they are a, a necessary component for, for conventional warfare? Well, there are disagreements on this. Most commanders you speak to will have different views on this. And some will say, look, they are still useful if you're up against a big, conventionally superior force like North Korea's in, in a place where you're defending a land border. Others will say there's a reason we haven't used these things in almost 30 years. And that's because they not only kill large numbers of civilians long after they've been stuck into the ground, but they also get in the way of your own army, right? If you're defending somewhere and then you need to go on the attack the next day, if there's a minefield in front of you, that's a, just as much a headache for you as it is for the other side. So they argue that really these things are outdated. There are better alternatives that can be detonated from a distance without having to be uh, stepped on and risk killing civilians. And there are just better ways to fight these days. But the bigger question about these things has always been the effect that you mentioned that civilians are often the victims. The bigger issue really has been civilian casualties. Landmine casualties have fallen significantly since the treaty was signed. But, you know, if you look to 2018, you still had about 2,000 people killed or wounded by various types of anti-personnel landmines, which is still a very substantial amount. Now, most of those are not those laid by states like America. Those are mostly by groups like Islamic State or the Taliban or the Houthis in Yemen. But it's still a problem. And so what would the, the, the Pentagon's defense be against the allegations that this is a big danger to civilians? What they say is that actually the sort of mines that we use are not like the ones that the Taliban are using. They say that they only have and would only use what they call non-persistent landmines. And these are landmines with the capacity to basically blow themselves up within a set period, which, which the Pentagon says is about 30 days. And some of them can blow themselves up in a few hours. What they say is that these are incredibly reliable self-destruct mechanisms. So they say only six landmines out of a million, which is about one in 167,000, are going to remain active beyond that period. Well, I mean, on the face of it, that sounds like it addresses the, the, the principal concerns that people have about these. Do, do, you, do you find it convincing? Not necessarily entirely convincing. These figures are typically calculated in laboratory tests, in pretty sterile conditions, not on the battlefield, not when they're tested under the fog of conflict. And what the history suggests, what the experts also say, is that these reliability figures for self-destruct mechanisms tend to be somewhat exaggerated. You know, if you look at the Gulf War, for example... The Pentagon said about 0.01% of landmines, sort of 12 of them in total, would remain active as duds. The actual amount was 2,000, uh, you know, two orders of magnitude higher. And again and again, we see this. The Trump administration loosened the rules on cluster munitions, which it said would have a very low dud rate. But actually, of course, it, it turns out to be slightly higher than calculated. So these figures aren't entirely uh, credible, I think, to most experts. So you say the Trump administration has has loosened these restrictions on on cluster munitions now on landmines. This is this is part of a, a a much broader trend here. I think that's right. This is about the way the Trump administration and the people around Trump look at 
the military and look at the idea of global rules that they see as constraining them without any benefit. They say, well, Russia and China don't abide by this rule. Why should we? And we see this across the board. We've seen the Trump administration, for example, devolve authority to commanders in the field on things like certain types of drone strikes. Uh, We have seen him pardon Navy SEALs with accusations of war crimes against them. I think we're looking at an era in which there's a great deal of uncertainty about the rules of warfare. You know, we've had 20 years of fights against terrorists, insurgents, kind of small conflict. And now America is looking at the possibility of big conflict with countries like Russia and China. And simply put, we have no idea what those wars are going to look like. But we do know that there's a sense that the rules are eroding, right? Russia has supported the use of chemical weapons in Syria by its ally, the Assad regime. We have new weapons coming in, like autonomous weapons, like lasers that that can do serious damage. And we simply don't have the same sense uh, uh, of what kind of rules and norms are going to govern some of these things in an era in which the big powers are competing again, uh, including with weapons technology that the world has never seen before. Shashank, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Between 1698 and 1807, merchants in the British city of Bristol financed more than 2,000 slaving voyages. Those ships carried more than half a million people from Africa to labor in the Americas. It's about looking at the links that the university has with the history of slavery. Olivet Otele studies the slave trade at Bristol University. Earlier this year, she took up the role of Professor of History and Memory of Slavery, the first such post in Britain. So it means looking at who the donors, the uh, the founding fathers, if you would, were, if they had links with the slave trade and slavery, who the student body was made of. Perhaps some of those students had ancestors or families that had plantations. Professor Otelli's appointment is part of a bigger movement within British universities, confronting their historical connections with enslavement and their enduring legacy. I think Bristol wanted to do something more, go beyond the the research, the academic research, but also have somebody who would be able to connect with the, the memory of slavery, which is something else. From the 17th to the 19th centuries, the slave trade was central to the building of the British Empire and economy. But that's a role that's often overlooked. It's the history of the nation, really. Bristol is just one of many examples of cities that were involved in the slave trade and slavery. That's not what most British people like to remember. What they like to focus on is the better story, which is William Wilberforce and the abolitionist cause. It's a much more uplifting narrative. Fiume Rocco is The Economist's culture correspondent. And I think that's why people like to focus on it rather than on the two centuries 
before that, when slavery really built the British Empire. That's changing now. I mean, we're seeing a movement pushed by student activists at universities, work that's been done by American colleges, forcing institutions to really create a much deeper picture of their past. And the universities are at the forefront of this, because after all, if you can't do this research at universities, where can you do it? And so Britain as a nation clearly benefited from the the slave economy, but what was the connection then to Britain's universities? Well, the universities were mostly built in the 18th and 19th century, and a lot of them were built with donations from people who had grown rich out of sugar, out of tobacco, out of shipbuilding, insurance. But a lot of them became rich because they were paid compensation for their slaves. Britain banned the slave trade in 1807, but it wasn't until 1833, with the abolition of Slavery Act, that owning slaves in the Caribbean principally became illegal. But the only way that this piece of legislation got pushed through Parliament was because the British government borrowed £20 million to pay compensation for the slave owners who were going to have to free their slaves. Slaves were regarded as property, and this was compensation for loss of property. Recently, one of the pieces of research that's been done has been at University College London, UCL, where they have created a database of the slave owners who were paid out. In 1834, when the money was paid, there was a complete list of 46,000 people who applied for and were paid compensation when slavery was abolished. A lot of these people were upstanding members of middle-class Victorian society. They championed social causes, and one of the great social causes that they championed was education. And so it's those universities that that benefited indirectly that are now trying to, to, to make amends in some way? Well, what you see on the UCL database is that there are clusters of slave owners, and of course they tend to be in the big cities on the west coast of Britain that was trading with the Caribbean. So you see it in Glasgow, you see it in Liverpool, you see it in Bristol, as well as in London, of course, because that was the financial centre. And it's the universities in most of those cities that are really doing the work, researching what their own institutional links with slavery were. There are Cambridge Dons, three colleges listed in the slave compensation scheme. Cambridge has started a university-wide research project. And we are seeing similar things being done in Nottingham, in Aberdeen, in Hull. Some universities are being surprisingly quiet. We would expect similar initiatives to be started at St. Andrews, for example, or more particularly Edinburgh, which was the financial insurance center of the Glasgow trade. But um, so far, they're keeping very quiet. And these efforts are, are limited to researching, essentially mapping out these connections and owning up to them? Well, that's the basic connection between all the universities, but they're all doing it a little bit differently. And Glasgow has really led the way. They were the first to initiate a research study. Glasgow found that 23 donors whose family fortunes came from slavery and the trade in slave-produced goods had donated. And that's the equivalent of £20 million today. And so Glasgow has decided 
to initiate a project that they call reparatory justice. They've teamed up with the University of the West Indies to create the Glasgow Caribbean Centre for Development Research in Kingston in Jamaica, and they have promised to raise £20 million to do three things, principally to do research into healthcare, particularly diabetes, which is endemic all over the Caribbean, to look at the degradation of the environment, especially on the coasts of these small islands, and to create an online history museum, because that way it'll be accessible to people all over the region. In raising this £20 million for this international project, they hope, I think for three things, they hope it'll make the case that Glasgow really is a global university with thousands of international students. They hope it'll be helpful when they're applying for funding from such global bodies as the Global Challenges Research Fund or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they are really hoping that it will avoid them being subjected to the roads must fall kind of campaign, which is a campaign of embarrassment, of accusation, uh, generally led on social media by activist students, has been extremely effective, both in Cape Town and uh, at Oxford. A lot of that sounds like uh, Glasgow pursuing its own self-interest. Self-interest is certainly a big part of it. I mean, you have to question why it's taken 200 years for this to come up. At the moment, there are some universities who find this really quite frightening, and there are others who are looking to turn it to their advantage. Glasgow is one of them. And so do you think that'll provide a model that that other universities that are coming to grips with this question will, will follow? I think there are a lot of universities who look at Glasgow and say, gosh, where are we going to find £20 million to do a project like this? But the basic research, the basic initiative to look into the past with rigorous intellectual discipline is something that universities really need to be good at. And so I think there will be a number of other institutions that will follow in the same way. Fimera, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Which is the better way to see live sport? You could be in the stadium, forming part of the roar of the crowd, feeling the collective thrill of a win, or the collective crush of defeat. Or you could be at home. After all, you get to see all the replays, all the on-screen analysis, and there's easy access to a beer. You just get a different view from the one in the stands. Increasingly, though, that's in part because of some digital trickery going on with the hoardings surrounding the pitch, those flashy advertising billboards. These hoardings place invisible infrared signals, which can't be seen by human eyes but can be picked up by cameras, into the signs themselves. Bo Franklin is a news editor at The Economist. So, for example, if you're watching a match on TV in Tijuana, you might see an advert for a local beer. But if you're a viewer in Tianjin, you might see the logo of a local bank. And so the idea here is that you can split up your various markets and sell ads in them and make more advertising money. 
That's right. Basically allows advertisers to tailor their messages to audiences. So commercial income is a huge deal, especially for the top football clubs. And this is where we've seen most interest in this technology. Europe's top 20 football teams, for example, made $3.9 billion in commercial income last year. One sports marketing expert estimated that virtual ads could increase this commercial income by up to 40%. And so this is just an idea or this is already being used? It's been used for the last season or two by quite a lot of European football teams. Paris Saint-Germain are using it. Real Madrid have started to use it. And it's also been picked up by other leagues around the world. So ice hockey and basketball in North America are using this. So it's becoming more common. So I might already have seen one of these virtual ads and not even known it. You might have done, yeah. So sports broadcasts have been using the kind of augmented reality for a long time. People will be familiar with graphics being projected onto the pitch, for example. But the thing about virtual ads is that if the technology is working well enough, and now it is, you shouldn't ever notice that it's actually happening when you're watching. So that's the real point here is extremely targeted advertising. Exactly. So far, the targeting has only been geographical, so directing it at different TV audiences around the world, usually by country, by region. But increasingly, people aren't watching sport on TV. They're watching on devices. Last year, Amazon started streaming the Premier League in the UK for the first time. And these kind of broadcasters have a lot more information on what their audience looks like. And they can tailor the streams that people are seeing as well. So in the future, in theory, you might see adverts on the side of a pitch at a Man United game tailored to the last purchase you made on Amazon, for example. At the moment, it's almost as much about what you can show people as what you don't want to show people. In Britain in the last few weeks, there's been a lot of talk about gambling adverts around football matches. There have been criticisms from anti-gambling advocates about the logos that are on football team shirts and the hoardings around the pitches. In recent weeks, gambling companies have said that they might consider pulling their sponsorship from teams altogether. And considering they sponsor half of all the teams in the Premier League, that's a lot of money that's at stake. And this technology could allow them to, say, show their adverts in countries where there's less criticism of gambling, it's more socially acceptable, People aren't so worried about the influence that these ads are having and hide it from others, like in the UK. And so does that mean it's going to be a mad proliferation then of advertisers and greater onslaught of ads more generally? Potentially, yes. But I think football teams and sports teams in general are smart enough that they know a huge rush of new sponsors isn't necessarily in their interests. Someone like Manchester United has been criticised in the past for endorsing everyone from bedding companies to instant noodle companies. And when you're kind of allying your premium brand of a world-beating team to increasingly niche and maybe regional sponsors, eventually some of the shine is going to rub off. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 for £12. See you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.